the National Archives podcast series, Behind the Scenes, Two Centuries of Census Taking, presented by Audrey Collins. Um, yes, as Jerry pointed out, it is almost Census Day. It will soon be upon us on Sunday, and I'm sure we're all going to fill in our census papers with great seriousness and accuracy. Although I'm sure you can still be a Jedi warrior if that's what you want to be. They're not going to go away. So behind the scenes, two centuries of census taking is actually a bit more than two centuries now. But that was a really neat title ten years ago when I did some work for ONS when they wanted to uh, promote the, um, the bicentenary census then. That was ten years ago. Where did the time go? I have done this talk or something very like it but I'm completely incapable of doing an identical talk to the one I've done before. So there will be some overlap, but there'll be some new material as well. I'm sure a lot of you know the basics of this, but how the census was taken. Well, from 1841 onwards at least, it was taken using the same districts and the sub-districts as civil registration uh, for births, marriages and deaths. And that used to be extremely helpful when you were trying to find people in the census. It's less important now because there are so many indexes, so you don't always need to uh, understand the underlying structure, which is a shame because the underlying structure is very interesting. The enumerators distributed the household schedules to every household as, as best they could, and that was not always easy. That still happens, except now they came through the post this time, and ONS were very pleased about how that had gone. And then the enumerator went round a week later, and this was a much more onerous task, and collected the, uh, what he hoped were the completed census papers, and then took them home and copied them up into enumeration books, at least from 1841 to 1901, uh, with a few exceptions. But that's basically how the system worked. 1911, as I'm sure many of you know, was very different. That was the first time that the enumerator did not have to copy everything uh, up into the enumeration book. So their, their job was still quite a hard one, but it was a lot easier than it had been. Now, the men here are just some of the men behind the census. Thomas Henry Lister, who was the first Registrar General, and he took over the census at relatively short notice. Prior to that, it had the, the, the 1801 to 1831 censuses which were really just head counts, although you will occasionally find lists of names, but you won't expect to find lists of names. Lister was uh, rather parachuted into this at a, at a late stage because these earlier censuses, they had all been organised by a man called John Rickman, who was a clerk to the House of Commons, and he very inconsiderately died in 1840, while he, was, he had actually started making preparations for 1841. And then somebody else had to take it on. Well, that young chap who seems to have uh, made quite a decent fist of civil registration, I'm sure he can handle that, or words to that effect. So Thomas Henry Lister, with not really much more than a few months' notice, was given the job of setting up the whole new census mechanism. This, for the first time, was when everybody was listed by name. And I have never seen this written down or said explicitly, but it seems to me that one of the best ways of making sure that you count everybody once and nobody twice is to list all the names, which is of great benefit to the genealogist much later on, but that was never why it was done. This 
sort of worked. It's never been completely accurate. In every census, you will get some people who are missing and you will get some people who appear twice for um, assorted different reasons. But Lister was the man who set up really the census mechanism which uh, was uh, adapted and amended. But what he set up in 1841 was very much the pattern for censuses really right into the 20th century. William Farr, in the middle, he was, uh, he was not ever Registrar General, though occasionally he's um, mistaken for being the Registrar General. He was actually uh, Superintendent of Statistics and eventually gave, had the title of Deputy Registrar General. He was appointed by Lister, but then Lister, uh, you know, the curse of the census, um, he died in 1842. So he saw out one census, but that was his lot. But Farr was already in post, and Farr is the one who was a doctor by training, although as far as I'm aware, he never practiced. But he was a statistician, the first real medical statistician. And he was responsible for the way that the statistics were presented. And when Lister died, his successor was the man on the right, George Graham. And George Graham was the second registrar general, and he was in post for very nearly 40 years which hasn't been equaled and never will be. William Farr was also in post for about the same length of time. So Farr and Graham made an absolutely terrific double act. Between them, they really uh, ran the census, and they didn't always agree about what had to be done, but they were, they were a very interesting pairing, and I think we owe them an awful lot for the way that the census uh, was managed and turned out, which was, on the whole, was quite efficiently done. You might not always feel that when you're desperately trying to find somebody who refuses to be found and you are cursing the uh, transcription errors or whatever. But it could be that they're not there. Uh, my ultimate fallback when you can't find somebody is, well, perhaps they, uh, they were hiding in the cellar because they thought it was the rent man. Um, and I'm not entirely joking when I say that because there, there are um, tales of enumerators being mistaken for some other much less popular public official. So that is always a possibility. So look hard first, but it might be that um, somebody deliberately avoided it because they thought this was the bailiff's man or some other undesirable. Now until 1920, when the census was put on a permanent footing, every census needed a census act before it could take place, so before all the preparation work could be done. One Census Act does look remarkably like another, but for no particular reason. That's the 1871 Act. And they are all slightly different as well. And this is one of the reasons we have what we call a 100-year rule, but it's not really a 100-year rule. Every census was taken on slightly different wording and the promises of confidentiality or no promise at all will vary from year to year. And this is why 1911 census for England and Wales was opened early as a result of a challenge under freedom of information. And the information commissioner's decision was, yes, it can be released early, but with certain information redacted. And that's what the, the, the white, they look like white slips of paper. They're electronic. They will be peeled back next year. But that was the, the information commissioner's decision for 1911. But 1921 census, that was taken under a different act, which uh, is a little bit more watertight. So challenging that act 
it's not necessarily going to be as easy as challenging the 1910 census act for the 1911 census was and even now the Scottish 1911 census the Scottish Freedom of Information Act was slightly different to the one for England and Wales so that was much more watertight so the Scottish 1911 census is uh, is still closed although it will be open very soon I am counting the days and I know at least one other person in the room who is doing the same no two of them so it all depends on the legislation so when people start talking about rules and precedents and hundred year rules it's a lot more complicated than that now back to Thomas Henry Lister uh, and planning the census this is a document of which this is only a couple of pages of it it's a very long document what you can see on the left hand side is actually the contents page and if you can read from that distance the number of pages go in go to over a hundred um, this is his plan for the 1841 census which of course at the time involved the census for Scotland too not Ireland, Ireland was dealt with separately but the Registrar General for England and Wales dealt with the Scottish census as well for 41 and 51 because there was no Scottish Registrar General until 1855 so this was Lister's plan and he was very good at thinking of you know, all the little details um, he or at least somebody reporting to him so that he could take the credit, I don't know which thought of all the details about they would need an office to administer this and they would need clerks how many clerks would they need the clerks would need to have pencils and stationery they would need to have fires to keep them warm and there would need to be porters and char ladies just so that the office would run efficiently all the really dull stuff but that needs to be done for any sort of operation to run smoothly and Lister's plan goes into a very great deal of detail it's beautifully written this is not by the way Lister's handwriting Lister's handwriting was appallingly bad so this was a proper clerk who wrote this so you can actually read it and you can read it if you want to I've got the document reference there RG 27-1 because that's what we do we cite our sources but in fact a lot of the documents that I'm going to mention here and much more besides they're all online they're not on our website they're on a wonderful website called Histpop and if I've got time at the end I will just show it to you probably only just a screenshot but that is an excellent site if you want to write it down it's Histpop H-I-S-T pop .org.uk and it's the um, Essex University Data Archive and that has all sorts of documents there a lot of National Archives ones it's all about civil registration and census lots of wonderful background information in fact I don't really need to do this I could just send you all out into the search room log onto a machine find Histpop and spend the rest of the day reading it everything you need to know will be there it's wonderful including a lot of these documents so that's a bit about planning the census and, and this is just a, just for flavor a couple more of the pages but you can see that there's, it's, it's all very very meticulous they did a sort of trial run to, to see what areas enumerators were going to cover how big the parishes were and what people could physically manage uh, so there's lots and lots of statistics and facts and numbers there it's wonderful we only have this for 1841 because after that it was a 
there were lots of amendments made, but essentially the basic setup worked reasonably successfully. There were a few things they didn't think of. didn't occur to anybody really how to enumerate people on vessels in 1841. And it wasn't always done particularly well after that. But on the whole, Lister and or his team managed to cover most of the eventualities. One of the things that they were very concerned about uh, was that because this was a, uh, a new way of taking the census and much more intrusive than the previous ones had been, that it wanted to know something about every single person. Not an awful lot of information by later standards. It was just name, age, occupation, and some indication as to birthplace. But that was more information than uh, people were accustomed to giving. So they were a little bit worried that uh, some people might cut up a bit rough about this. And in fact, uh, police protection was offered to the enumerators in a number of places, uh, generally in the cities, uh, and some of them actually took it up. Although um, I'm not aware of any reports of riot or insurrections, I think on the whole um, the British population were fairly compliant. Um, they may have been terrified of the, uh, the threat of a fine for not filling it in. Uh, but on the whole, for whatever reason, people behaved fairly well uh, and they did as was expected of them. But it's quite good to know that uh, the General Register Office had contingency plans. I haven't said very much about the 1801 to 1831 censuses, but it's worth mentioning them at this point because 1841 is a funny sort of halfway house of a census. It was taken on the basis of the registration districts because there was, there was a framework already set up. The superintendent registrars organised their districts and they uh, cascaded their instructions down to the registrars and then they collected the, um, all, all the paperwork back from the registrars. The registrars in the sub-districts were responsible for recruiting the enumerators and working out you know, what area each of them was to cover. But, and this actually made a lot of sense because the statistics from it would then sit very nicely with the vital statistics of births, marriages and deaths. But the earlier censuses, of course, had been taken before there was a General Register Office and even before the poor law unions that General Registration was based on. So the old way of organising the census was on the basis of the, uh, the very much older divisions of hundreds or lades, wapentakes and a couple of other things in, uh, according to regional variations. So that's how the older censuses were organised and that's how the statistics were uh, collected. So 1841 was taken on the basis of the registration districts but then to try and uh, marry the results up with the earlier ones, the books were physically taken apart and then reassembled in the old order of hundreds. Now anybody who um, has been around for absolutely ages, i.e. about five years, and used to look at the census on microfilm and had to use uh, the paper finding aids to find things, would have looked in 1841 and you would have seen that the way it was arranged was different and it was because it had been contrived back into the hundreds. 1851 onwards though, and it was um, civil registration boundaries, districts and sub-districts all the way, so that is a little bit simpler. Speaking of 1851, there is one of the householder schedules. Now you don't very often see these because these were routinely destroyed. Once everything was written up into the enumeration books, 
there was no need to keep the household schedules because all the information that was on them had been copied. Now we have no way of knowing just how many alterations the enumerators made when they copied up because although there are some surviving household schedules I have never yet found one where there is also a corresponding enumeration book. There may be one but I haven't found one. When these things crop up it seems to be where there is no corresponding book. This particular one comes from Newcastle on Tyne and it's one of quite a big series of household schedules where uh, it looks to me as though the enumerator filled up his enumeration book uh, and hadn't got a spare one. Maybe he'd left it to the last minute. Maybe there just weren't any spare ones. Maybe they had slightly underestimated the number they would need in that district. I don't know. Um, so you get uh, an enumeration book and then it suddenly abruptly stops and then you get a whole lot of household schedules just for this one part of Newcastle. I've occasionally seen other random ones which may be kept because perhaps the enumerator wrote everything up, realised he'd left a family out uh, and then just tacked it on at the end for speed. We'll never know. You can make up your own story. Nobody can prove you wrong. But this is what every household would have got and it's got all the instructions on there as to exactly how they were to fill it in and, uh, and an example, a printed example, sort of lying on its side there next to the address showing them uh, how it should be done. And of course this is the really interesting bit where the uh, householder actually filled it in. So in this case, if you do happen to be descended from James Spencer Draper of Newcastle, in 1851, that's his handwriting at the bottom. Probably. You can never absolutely guarantee that. I've always been quite interested in what it is that enumerators actually did. Yes, we know they distributed these forms and they went and collected them. And then people say, ah, but what about the people who couldn't read, couldn't read and write or couldn't read and write well enough to fill in their own census paper? Well, people often say rather glibly, oh, the enumerator filled them all in. Well, the enumerator might have done, but I can't believe that the enumerator uh, had the time to fill in absolutely every illiterate or subliterate person's schedule. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence that people got somebody else to fill in their paper for them if they weren't able to do it themselves. Now, this, is, this is, takes the form of maybe letters or notes from enumerators, reports in newspapers. So you can't really call it scientific evidence, but there is enough to suggest that a fair number of, of people got some help, whether it was from um, a family member who could read and write, might be their child. You have a fairly long period in the late Victorian age when a lot of parents couldn't read and write, but their children could, um, at least up to a point, and the children might well uh, fill in the paper. And there are examples of enumerators recounting that people had said uh, very proudly to them, there, it's all filled in nicely, you know, my, my boy Billy did that or something. So there are examples of that. But the enumerator's job was not a straightforward one. And in the newspapers, you get... Um, some quite interesting things, things you will never find in any official source. I mentioned about people being missed out of the census and this is sometimes because their address might be missed out. And I've got this one here which was only given to me a few days ago. It, it pays to go around doing talks 
because when you go to somewhere, if you shut up and listen for five minutes, you get stuff back as well. And I was speaking in Preston last Saturday at a, a day conference on the census, and somebody there handed me this uh, lovely transcription from an issue of the Eccles Journal, 1891. It doesn't say what the date is in 1891, but I imagine it wouldn't be too difficult to find. And th this has got a, an account of the difficulty of working out exactly who you had to deliver the paper to. And the enumerator says, I may best describe this part of the duty of taking the census of the houses. This needs to be done with care, as the numbers of houses are anything but regular in some of the streets, owing to the demands and the march of sanitary improvements. Single houses being converted into double ones and other causes have considerably upset the original numbers. That's a good cautionary tale. Never trust a house number. Uh, you always, always tie it up with some sort of fixed physical point, like a pub or a church or something. A shopkeeper has wanted a little more elbow room and has absorbed it at the next house or cottage at the back or some householder tenaciously clinging on to the old neighbourhood through the growth of family has taken another house next to his own. Thus you deliver a census paper at number 25 and proceed to leave one at 23 when the same face appears and assures you that it is all one house. <laughs> a bit like the Beatles and one of the early scenes of help. With the, yeah. Yes, you've seen it too, good. And that's just one nice uh, illustration of how difficult it could be for the enumerator. And we have certainly found cases where uh, there are houses which two enumerators each thought was in their district and turned out to be, well, we might never get to the bottom of whose district it was meant to be in, but sometimes these people got two forms and they very obligingly filled them both in, sometimes rather worryingly with slightly different information. But houses could be missed out altogether. This is from another newspaper. This is from the Derbyshire Times. Uh, and this is 1901, so it's not even a really, really old one. This is the enumerator going round his district. And as he was going down the yard, a little lad, as well nourished as could be expected in such a quarter, disappeared in what was only like a hole in the wall. The enumerator followed and asked if anyone lived there. Oh, yes, replied the lad, we do. Opening the door, he saw a flight of stairs which led to one biggish room above the passage where a man, his wife and family lived, ate and slept. And this was something that the enumerator would have missed. He didn't realise that there was an address or a household there and it was only because he saw this little boy disappearing rather like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland into a hole and followed him. That was quite a brave and intrepid enumerator. So I'm not sure if they would all have done that. They also had some difficulty with, with, the, uh, with getting the information out of people, even if they had established that there was a household there. Some people could be quite uh, lippy and not always terribly cooperative. But the enumerators did their best. And this is an example, very hard to see, but it's really just there just to show that these things actually did exist. These are special schedules that were produced in 1911 for the enumeration of the homeless. And this was so that everybody would be counted. And this included tramps sleeping on park benches, people in ditches, in railway arches, anywhere that was not a dwelling. And these people were enumerated by the police who got as much detail out of them as they could and then passed the information on to the uh, enumerators uh, so the information gathered by the police would appear 
on um, a, a census schedule, but it wouldn't be filled out by the resident of the park bench. Uh, one of my favourites there was a, a sailor in uh, Portsmouth or Southampton, but obviously one of the ports, who was enumerated um, on a, a railway platform because he'd missed his last train. Um, but of course, the, the really interesting people that you will find listed on these special police schedules were the suffragettes. Now, they made a big fuss. Um, they got a tremendous amount of publicity. In terms of actual numbers, the, the suffragettes dodging the census or ostentatiously holding an outdoor demonstration against the census are not enough to affect the, the, the overall uh, take-up of the census. I think honours were even, because um, where there were people who were identifiable as being outdoors, uh, the police were instructed to count them and um, gather as much information as they reasonably could um, without risking life and limb or causing too much offence. So the suffragettes, um, particularly the ones who were ostentatiously demonstrating, uh, were counted, so the numbers were okay. And they, they, they made their point and they got a lot of publicity. So um, the take-up of the census has always been extremely good. So they weren't going to affect the statistical outcome in any way. Um, it's a in very interesting episode. What I do like, though, is that when you come to the classification, um, which, of course, was the, uh, the object of the exercise, that the classification that was used for the, the suffragettes or any other objectors, um, they were put into the same category as, as the homeless. This is another example of, of not a special schedule as such. By the time you get to 1901 and 1911, you get so many different... Um, schedules for households and large households and institutions and vessels and all sorts of things. And there's a fine line between what, what's a large household and what's an institution. Uh, 1911, Buckingham Palace apparently was an institution, but it could easily have been a large household. I think that was down to the whim of the enumerator. This is not a special schedule as such. This is a, 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 an oddity. Um, this is also on the Histpop website, because that's how I found it. 1901, uh, they pretty much got the idea about um, vessel schedules, so ships of the Royal Navy and merchant ships, if they were within reasonable reach of a port, would have a census schedule, which would then be filled in. And Royal Navy ones are sometimes filled in very great deal of detail. I have seen some of them where in, in, instead of just giving the age, you get the age in years and months. So somebody's been very meticulous there. But this is one, this is a substitute. In 1901, there was some confusion as to whether the return for HMS Signet had actually been sent back. So just to be on the safe side, they, they made another one. And this is just ruled on, on regular paper, but it gives all the information that would be on a proper printed schedule for a vessel uh, and there are about 61 men on there. Now we have no way of knowing whether the actual original schedule for HMS Signet ever made it home because there is a chunk of the Royal Navy, ships beginning with C, they give or take, where they've gone missing. Now that can only have happened once they were collected centrally because uh, it's beyond coincidence that, oh, you know, unless there was a really big elaborate 
Jedi Knight sort of practical joke going on among the Navy to uh, not send in the, the schedules for ships beginning with C, just to confuse future generations. This one did arrive, but only because somebody ruled a completely separate substitute. So there are about 60 men there. Now, you will not find this included with anybody's version of the 1901 census, because strictly speaking, it's not part of it. It's part of another document altogether. However, out of the goodness of my heart, because I'm a public-spirited sort of citizen, I actually transcribed all the names on there, and I put them into your archives, which is our um, National Archives Records wiki. So if you want to find that, go to your archives and then just type in Signet and that should find it. And you never know, there might be somebody there that you've been looking for for ages. My reward will be in heaven, I expect. <laughs> this is an example of a special schedule, though. This is in Welsh. I don't know whether that's distinct enough for you to be able to see that it's, uh, it's not in English. There have always been Welsh language schedules and instructions, uh, even long before you know, the modern day when everything in Wales has to be bilingual. From 1841 onwards, there have always been um, Welsh language schedules and instructions printed for the benefit of Welsh speakers, people whose first language was Welsh, and they could fill, fill in this Welsh one. I believe that the first one actually had to be withdrawn fairly quickly because there was a mistake in the translation but at least it shows somebody cared. So there have always been Welsh schedules, and you will, you will see those in the 1911 census, of course, being the first year when the originals were kept. Prior to that, you will sometimes see, when the census is written up into the enumeration books, you will get an indication that it was a Welsh language one, but you won't actually see them completed until 1911. This is a, an alternative language one of a different sort, though. This particular one is in Yiddish and German, or at least it's, it's examples from Yiddish and German schedules. Now, these were produced because of the, the large uh, concentration of Jewish immigrants in the East End of London, in particular, who didn't speak English, or, or at least who didn't read and write it well enough to fill in the census accurately. And because under enumerating of the, the uh, Jewish pop population in the East End would have meant uh, an inaccurate and incomplete census. The authorities went to a great deal of trouble to enlist the help of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, we have lots and lots of correspondence about this, to encourage people to fill in their census forms properly. First of all, they had to reassure them because people who have fled from pogroms in Eastern Europe are going to have um, a very, very healthy scepticism, if not outright fear, of authority. So they first of all had to be assured that um, this was a perfectly benign thing uh, and that they would not, we wouldn't be sending the Cossacks in after them. So there was a lot of trouble taken over this and there are schedules in Yiddish and in German. Y Yiddish is, is a sort of German language but um, written in Hebrew characters and German is just German, and that was the languages that were spoken by the, the majority. So we have quite a lot of interesting correspondence about this and the sample schedules. The difference from the Welsh ones, though, was that these were only meant to be examples, just to show you which box was which. Um, the um, householders were still supposed to fill in the English language one, but using these uh, as a key. 
Um, and mostly they did that. I don't know if there are any stray ones. I haven't found any. But I haven't looked at every page of 1911. Not yet, anyway. Give me time. This is just a little bit more about the enumerators. I've mentioned a little bit about what they did and, and how difficult their job could be. Um, and they, they, you know, they weren't always very happy with it, although some people um, did turn up on two, three, or in one case, even four censuses. So they, they either didn't hate it that much or they were really, really desperate. Or they could have been just very, very nosy. Um, it does that. that is the one perk of the job that you do get to quite legitimately poke your nose into other people's business. And in the days that we're talking about the censuses that are open, these people would be your neighbours. And you might like to think about that, really, if you've got um, ancestors in the census whose information doesn't look quite right. You're pretty sure they're your people, but the information doesn't seem to quite match everything else. Might not be a bad idea to have a look and see who the enumerator was for their district. Because if your people, like mine, were sort of borderline paupers, and the enumerator was some kind of poor law official as his day job, and this was very often the case, that might well have influenced the information that they put down, confidentiality or no confidentiality. If, if it was your boss or your next door neighbour or the pub landlord or somebody that you knew quite well. Seriously, if you knew they were going to have this paper in their hands, how much would you uh, trust them with accurate information? This, though, is a, is a claim form for the payment for the enumerators. We, the, these sort of things, we don't have them for every census year. This one happens to be from 1891. And by this time, we've got quite a nice sort of pro forma that they have to fill in uh, according to um, the, you know, how much they've done and the hours it's taken them and how far they've walked. But the enumerators were never very happy with the level of payment. Uh, and you don't often find little caustic remarks to this effect uh, all over the... Uh, the, 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 the census uh, enumeration books, sometimes actually on the title pages, and some of them are really quite rude. Ten years ago, um, I was working as a, a, a freelance researcher, and I was taken on by the Office for National Statistics to do um, various um, centenary census things. That they engaged me as a researcher to get uh, lots of interesting examples for them, and I found lots of interesting <coughs> examples, and I've been recycling them ever since. Um, but one of the things that they did ask me to go a bit easy on was all the really interesting items that took the form of enumerators moaning about the conditions and the rates of pay. Said it'd be, it'd be quite nice. We don't really want to publicise that because we're still trying to recruit them for 2001. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't want to bite the hand that fed me, but that was a long time ago now and it doesn't matter anymore, so I can say it if I like. But enumerators, which will be no great surprise to anybody, often moaned a bit. They weren't always easy to recruit. And sometimes, and this is why you might find poor law officials, you will sometimes find that they're more or less suborned into it, uh, that when they run out of volunteers, uh, or at least they've got the volunteers and then weeded out the ones who couldn't write, um, then they would sort of lean on the people who uh, worked for usually the poor law union uh, in some way. So a lot of the um, enumerators weren't exactly willing and I've already mentioned quite a lot of the experiences they had and some of them they quite enjoyed it and they liked noting down the little oddities they had uh, you know asking for example a young couple who's the head of the household and the husband age 21 said I don't know yet I've only been married a fortnight uh, and, and little gems like that uh, or people who put down the pet canary as a member of the family 
and describe their daughter-in-law as too idle for anything and so on and so on. I mean, there's a million of them. They, they often saw the, uh, the, the interesting and the funny side, although when they were slogging around in the wind and the rain and getting sworn at, they might not have seen it immediately. <laughs> now, the payment, there's a claim form there, uh, but the payment was a, often a contentious issue. And in 1851, there was an enumerator who unsuccessfully sued the Home Secretary for 10 pence. That's 10 old pennies. It was a test case, and the reason was that they were paid a flat fee for the first 300 names that they enumerated. And then after that, it was a shilling for the next 60. And his claim was that he hadn't enumerated 60, but the Home Office were insisting that he would only get paid for each complete 60 and not pro rata. And he claimed, I think very reasonably, that he should get paid for uh, the proportion uh, that he had actually enumerated. Um, it would make good sense to me to actually allow that because um, if you were, just think, if you're an enumerator and you knew that you were going to get paid for 60 people but nothing at all if you only had 58, well, I would have made a couple up. <laughs> anyway, the government had better lawyers than the, the unfortunate enumerator. So, so the case was lost. But there certainly are, in, in various newspapers, you will find reports of sort of protest meetings uh, by uh, enumerators uh, complaining about their, uh, uh, their, their lot. So nowadays the, the, uh, the, the enumerator um, doesn't have anything like such a bad job. The schedules are delivered by um, post. Ten years ago, for the first time, we could send them back by post. This year, we can do that, and we can also fill them in online. So that does leave a lot less for the enumerator to do, although, of course, what they're left with is the really horrible stuff. It's going reminding people who've forgotten, going and prodding people who are very unwilling. Um, so it's still a job that I wouldn't do. I'm glad I've got a day job. From 1891, uh, women could be employed as enumerators, although earlier than that, they could be assistant enumerators. And this was a sort of unofficial job, but it was established it was absolutely fine for an enumerator to strong arm some neighbor, friend, member of their family into um, assisting them, which usually took the form of some sort of donkey work. In this particular case, this is 1871, and the Reverend Whitehead uh, in a district in Dewsbury had um, got, um, got an old lady in his parish um, who's uh, by an old lady who is upwards of 73 years of age filled this in. Well, that's hardly patronising at all, is it? So she did the writing up, and you do see examples where it might be the enumerator's son or so, some, somebody that they've got a hold over to do uh, some of the, uh, the, the, the tedious work. Um, so that, that is an example. There may be an earlier one, it's the earliest one I've found of a woman uh, being actually involved in the enumeration process. 1911 though, of course, it's all different. The census is automated. Uh, and this was really looking at what the Americans did. And the Americans had been automating their census since 1890. The American census is always in the year ending in naught. I am still kicking myself for being in America last year. And if I'd only thought and booked my flight home a day later, I would have been in the American census last year. 
Uh, and it was just sheer carelessness. I could easily have done it, but I'm thinking ahead, nine years' time. Get it right, then. <laughs> but it wasn't just copying the Americans. The amount of information being gathered and tabulated had absolutely reached the limit that could be done manually. We have samples of what you can only call spreadsheets. That's why spreadsheets are called spreadsheets. They're like great big sheets, and you have to spread them out on a really big table, like the ones up in the map room. Even then, I think you'd have to be fairly tall or stand on a box to reach over to tick all the far distant boxes, and you'd still probably get a bad back. So it absolutely reached the limit that you could do with any sort of manual tabulation. But the statisticians and government wanted more and more information. They always did. Um, I said that William Farr and George Graham were a great double act, and Farr being the statistician, he just wanted to ask everybody every question you could ever think of. And the, uh, the, the London Statistical Society became the Royal Statistical Society. They were all for this. Oh, can we ask this? Can we ask that? And you get rather dry little comments by George Graham saying, I expect they'll want eye colour next. And they wanted all this information, which would have been very useful and interesting. But George Graham knew that he had to screw the money out of the Treasury, which was not easy, never has been. So he had to always do a sort of balance between what he could reasonably get Treasury funding for and what could practically be done, and what the, the, the statisticians would ideally like. So he probably ended up pleasing nobody very much, but the census ran reasonably smoothly. Uh, and he and Farr actually were quite a, you know, they, they were a very good double act. Um, in fact, to such an extent that um, they both retired about the same time. And in, in his, Graham's very, very last official communication with the Treasury um, was uh, referring to Farr. He said, this, in, in this, my last official communication to their lordships, I venture to express an earnest wish that his excellent services may be recognised with special consideration and that he may be permitted to receive full pay during the rest of his life. Because Farr wasn't independently wealthy, unlike a lot of the other senior civil servants. And uh, it was a nice recognition that they'd, they'd worked so very well together. They would have had their little spats, but uh, on the whole, they were a terrific team. Well, about a generation on, this is what it led to. The Americans had been using... Um, tabulating machines called Hollerith machines. This is what the um, English Registrar General eventually went with. And on the right-hand side, you'll see there is uh, what they used. It's a computer punch card. Anybody who worked in an office in the 1970s might well have been very familiar with that scratchy confetti that you get all over the place when you've run a few thousand of those through a punch card machine. Well, they were using them in 1911 for tabulating the, the census results. And there is an example. Now you see him. Um, 1911 census. Now, I, I have picked this one for a particular reason. It's Harry Houdini. Well, that's quite interesting in itself. And it, it's fascinating to know that in 1911, he was in England. He was in a boarding house in Huddersfield. Um, but the reason I, I've, I've shown this, um, it's not that it's an exceptionally interesting return, but today, apparently, if he hadn't had that unfortunate accident when somebody punched him, would have been Harry Houdini's 137th birthday. So I thought he was quite a topical choice. Uh, so that's a 1911 census return, and you've probably seen a number of these. And the, um, 
all the little numbers that people are often very interested in. You see little red numbers near the birthplaces, and you'd also get numbers near the occupations uh, and uh, and various places there. People think, oh, th this is really interesting. Is this going to lead on to something fascinating? Well, on the whole, no, because that's just the numbers that were put on these forms by the clerks who were classifying the occupations. They translated the occupations and birthplaces and other data to a simple numeric code so that the punch card operators who were, guess what, young girls because they were cheap and they were fast, um, that they could just do a very, they could make a simple boring job even simpler and more boring. The instructions to the clerks go on for pages and pages and pages. Uh, the instructions for the punch card operators who were young girls who, the, who were, had left elementary schools in the uh, Millbank area, which is where the census office was in 1911. Uh, they were recruited as the, as the punch card operators uh, under the supervision of lady typists. Uh, but the experienced GRO clerks actually translated the um, sometimes rather hard to follow birthplaces and occupations and the like into the numbers. So you can look the numbers up, but they only tell you what's, uh, what you've just seen. The only time when that might be helpful is if you've got an occupation which um, you have never come across before, and there's lots of those. If you look up the number in the classification, you'll see where it comes in the great scheme of things, although there is another way you can do that. Before I just go, go on to that bit, though, this is the, the enumerator summary book. Not enough people look at these. When you get a 1911 census image up, there are some associated pages that you can look at. And one of them, uh, which is called the list, on, whether it's on 1911 census site or on the Find My Past um, site. And this is the, the summary book, which shows just a line for each address. And you just get the name of the head of the household there. But you also get some extra information. Now, most of this is information that you already know, because if you've looked up your family or a family you're interested in, you know their name, um, and you know how many people are in the household because you've just been looking at the schedule. But what this shows you is the, the, the street, or at least a part of it, and the, or, or the village or wherever. And you'll see the schedule numbers on the left-hand side, and then the house number, if there is one, and the names of the people. But what you will see here that you won't see anywhere else um, is what sort of a building it was. In this case, it's mainly private houses, although uh, there, is a, there are a couple of shops on the left-hand page. But here is also where you'll see if there are any empty buildings, uh, if there are you know, unoccupied premises like shops and factories that don't have anyone in overnight. So that's always worth looking at, and it's very easy to overlook, but don't overlook it. Uh, it gives you a snapshot of who the neighbours were, and sometimes you'll see you know, familiar names that you wouldn't necessarily have gone looking for. So, and of course, this is great for local historians um, that you can actually see the context there. But back to the clerks. This is the instructions to the clerks. These were produced from 1871 is the earliest one I've been able to find. But they were produced for every year um, onwards. We've got printed versions of this for 1881 and 1901. And they're fairly similar. They don't vary a lot from year to year. But this is the, the classification of occupations. Now, it doesn't define any occupation at all. You can see the cover there and then just the, the, uh, the sort of top level of the classification of the various uh, orders. Um, 
that you've got the professional classes and so on, and the commercial class and the industrial class. Uh, and then within that, it's divided into suborders. And they are, I mean, this particular example is order 14, persons working and dealing in vegetable substances, which covers a surprisingly wide range of occupations. The one on the right-hand side is just the um, alphabetical list that you find at the back. Again, it doesn't define anything, but it tells you the order and the suborder. So if you've got some weird and wonderful occupation, and you open that book at any page you like, and you will find occupations you've never heard of, um, then that will tell you where it comes in the scheme of things, and you can often work out at least um, what sort of industry somebody was in. Uh, from this, you could sort of work out, although it doesn't define it, that um, a camp tulicon was some kind of floor cloth. Well, I never knew that until I looked closely at this example. There you are, you learn something every day. But this, we, uh, we, we use this quite a bit when we're trying to decipher what an occupation is. And said, so, fine, that's what it says. Now, what does it mean? Well, you might be on your own there. But it's a, it's a strangely absorbing thing to look at. Now, I've talked a bit about taking the census and doing the tabulation and what the enumerators did and what the clerks did. But having done all this and crunched all the numbers and printed the reports, we then rather obligingly kept the census. And that wasn't an absolute given. I mean, you, you may well know that as the National Archives, we take in records that are generated by or collected by government departments. But we don't keep every single piece of paper that has ever been produced or collected by every government department. If we did, we'd need another two or three postcodes, minimum. And this is a letter that I came across from uh, as recently as the 1960s, at which point it hadn't been decided for certain whether the 1871 census, which of course was still closed, um, was going to be worth keeping at all, whether it was just so much waste paper. It's awfully expensive to microfilm it. Well, we might, we might not. We haven't made up our minds yet. Now, as it turned out, yes, it was kept. We know that because we've been looking at it for a long time. But it was not, you know, an automatic thing. And um, earlier censuses, the 51 and 61 censuses, at one point the um, local government board wanted to sort of set a match to the whole lot of them, just taking up so much space and a lot of waste paper. They were quite evangelical about it. And the Registrar General at the time, Bridges Henniker, who's not generally rated as being a very good Registrar General, um, at least he did have the vision to suggest that even though they weren't very usable, if we had that sort of information from 1751 and, um, and 1761, it would be worth keeping in the hope that somebody could do something with it later. So I can forgive him an awful lot of idiocy for uh, actually having the vision to think that that might be a good idea. It wasn't his say-so, it had to go to the Home Office, but I like to think that his actual, his opinion did carry some weight. So um, we are quite lucky, really, that we have got so much census to look at. Although, unfortunately, we don't have all of it. Those of us who live long enough still won't get to see the 1931 census for England and Wales because that went up in flames uh, during the war, which, is, which means that there is an enormous great gap. You don't get a proper census between 1921 and 1951. I mean, there, is, there was a census of sorts in 1939, but we may not get to see that. Searching the census, well, we do that now when a census is open, and we used to do it on microfilm, and before that, before my time, uh, you could look through the original books, and now we do it online. 
But the first time that the, the census was required to be searched quite a lot um, was um, following the old age pensions being introduced in 1908. And people had to, pr to prove their age. Well, not everybody who was over 70, in fact, most people over 70 at that point didn't have a birth certificate. And if a baptism entry couldn't be found or a marriage giving their age, one of the acceptable forms of proof was a census entry. Well, the General Register Office were not very happy with that. And this is a letter stating quite categorically that no, a search cannot be done. But uh, you know, the Home Office sort of leaned on them and said, I think you'll find it can be. Uh, and they had to produce actual forms for people to fill in. But it was something that was not done with any great enthusiasm. But it was, you know, it was required. So uh, they would have, the, the poor people in the general register office who had to do this um, 100 years ago, um, I just, I wonder what they would have th thought if they could have seen the way we can search the census now. You know, we complain about um, you know, bad transcription or something being missing images, and that really, we don't know we're born, do we? <laughs> Finally, this is a nice scandal story. 1921 census was postponed by a few weeks. The census has always been taken about the end of March, beginning of April. Um, so for 1841, it was taken in June. But then one of the things that came out of that was that June was not a great time because too many seasonal workers would be away from home. So a spring date was, was, uh, was arrived at as being more suitable. And so it continued. Well, in 1921, there was serious industrial unrest in uh, South Wales. And it was just confined to South Wales. But it would have meant that the census couldn't be taken accurately in that area. And the, the authorities agonised about it for a while, but decided that it would be better to postpone the whole census for a few weeks rather than to have a great sort of hole in the country where the returns were not very reliable. You did the whole country properly or you didn't do it at all. Now, they had always held out against um, people trying to advertise on census communication. This is a serious government thing, we don't want to cheapen it by having advertising on it, it would destroy the integrity, all sorts of very good reasons. But in this case, what they had to do was to send, just send out a flyer notifying everybody that it was going to be on the Sunday the 19th of June and not the advertised date that was in all the stationery. So it wasn't strictly speaking a census communication, so that was all right. Well, it might have been, but um, Unfortunately for the General Register Office, they found an agent who said, oh, I've got a customer who's launching a new newspaper. So being able to have effectively a national mail shop will be just fabulous. So they, they arranged for this to be done. Now, unfortunately, the newspaper, as you can see there, was called the Sunday Illustrated. And the proprietor of the said newspaper, who was also an MP, was one Horatio Bottomley. Now, some of you may have heard of Horatio Bottomley. If you haven't, think Robert Maxwell, <laughs> and you're getting close. Except that uh, Horatio Bottomley, who, by the way, had already been bankrupt once, he, launched his, he was launching his newspaper in 1921, shortly after the census, so perfect timing. Slightly less than perfect timing was that his whole world burned later in 1921, when he was uh, very publicly exposed as a thief and a fraud, uh, basically running a sort of pyramid, what the Americans would call a Ponzi scheme. And um, he got found out, very spectacular downfall, got sent to jail. 
So um, this, uh, this did not go down very well. People were objecting anyway. We have a whole file about this episode. People objected to the fact that they were getting advertising material on what they considered to be a census communication. Um, and then when all this blew up in their faces in, uh, later in 1921, that just made it even worse. So um, no advertising material whatsoever has appeared on the census ever since then. I can't imagine why, can you? Thank you very much. And that is that. <laughs> This event was recorded live on the 24th of March 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>